Welcome to Generation Nation, the show that connects the five generations of Americans now living and working together. I'm Bobby Batista. One of the more fun pastimes among politicos is dissecting how the younger generation, in this case millennials, will impact upcoming and future elections. A massive millennial poll conducted by Fusion, the media network owned by Disney and ABC News, whose content is directed at millennials, surveyed 1,200 likely voters, the key word there is likely voters, between the ages of 18 and 34, on their attitudes about everything from politics to smoking pot. A couple of interesting findings in politics. Paul Ryan and Hillary Clinton are their picks for 2016 presidential candidates. Millennials say the economy, debt and spending, and terrorism are the most important issues for them. So we've put together an intergenerational panel to talk about this. Political reporters Jim Galloway and Greg Bluestein from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are here. Jim is a boomer. Greg is a... Aging millennial. You're a millennial, a millennial on the edge of Gen X. Yes. That's better than saying aging millennial. Governor Deal spokesman and Deputy Chief of Staff Brian Robinson is with us. Brian is a Gen Xer. And Rebecca Guerra of Pro-Georgia also joins us. She is a millennial. And you all know how this works. I'll start you off here and then everybody just jump in when they want. But let me start with Rebecca and Greg. How do millennials that you know and that you interact with feel about the political process in general? Millennials I know, (laughs) they are uh, uh, keeping at arm's length. I mean, when I go to parties or when I go to events, I hear about maybe one or two things. Transportation I hear a lot about. And I hear about, you know, very, very local issues like, oh, I can't believe, you know, they're changing the kindergarten age for my kids. And that's that's about it. I hear a lot of distraction about uh, the, the national political scene, people who don't want to watch debates, who don't want to get involved, who who are over overdone, who think the politicians are overdoing it, who don't want to read about it, who don't want to see it, who are tired of commercials and digital ads and everything, everything in between. Um and then there's that hardened core of, of activists who, you know, want to get in, anything, you know, they want more and more and more of it. Um, but in general, um, you know, even even me, even knowing a reporter, very few of them know what I do, know what, <laughs> know, <laughs> read, read what I write, know what a newspaper <laughs> is anymore. Wow. wow, wow. Rebecca? So I'm at the other end of that generation. Um, and I do see a lot of um, excitement and enthusiasm and activism from within the millennials. I think it's a little bit different, though. It's not really focused on voting, and it's something that we're actively trying to change. But there is a lot of enthusiasm on the ground, whether it be participating in rallies or going to events. We saw a lot of action around the Black Lives Matter, and that um, that really just sparked a lot of Uh, energy around being part of the process, but it just hasn't translated yet into voting. Like most younger generations, is there an ongoing trust factor with Washington in general and politics across the board? Probably. Um, I think that (laughs) there's definitely a disillusionment, and I think that there is a a distance between them, right? If you talk to the average person, they have some sense of what what President Obama does. But I know that we, when we talked about the poll, they said they don't know who their U.S. senator is, right? Mm-hmm. But it's because it's not relevant to them. And I think that one of the obstacles is really taking the issues that are relevant to them day to day, whether it's access to affordable higher education or it's jobs or whatever they're looking at, and making it more relevant and local to them. But I think what, what I'm hearing from Greg and from Rebecca is that the little generation is like every generation that came before. Mm-hmm. When they're at at this time in life, those are very normal rites of passage. When people have young children at home, throughout history, they're going to be less engaged on what's happening in national politics mm-hmm. because they don't have time. I mean, yeah. Greg's life is consumed by 
uh, ballet recitals and diapers and, and diapers <laughs> and I mean, I mean that, that's that's the, his focus as it should be but the stuff you're saying about the lack of faith in washington and disillusionment i mean i'm sitting across here from uh, jim galloway who's a baby boomer whose generation said don't trust anybody over 30 <laughs> uh these are all people who are now in their 60s and uh in, and smoked a lot of pot for the you know probably <laughs> the first generation that so openly uh embraced uh the sexual revolution and illegal drug use and then you know my generation when i was in college I can't, the, the word on us was how disillusioned and detached we were. Kurt Cobain, who was a heroin addict who shot himself, was allegedly the symbol of our generation. Oh, I can see that. You know what, You know what, Jim? You know what? I still don't trust anyone over 30. What about you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, I'm here, just saying, I'm still here's, here's just a little pushback on, on uh, Mr. Robinson here uh, <laughs> in, in that, uh, yeah, we used pot. Yeah, we uh, uh, kind of uh, got a little bit more sexually re- relaxed. But we also saw a lot of our leaders killed, shot, mm-hmm. assassinated. And that kind of that kind of does wake you up to what's going on. And I'm sure that was that was part of the reason that my generation acted. They acted outside the system. They, they, they did. I mean, uh, this is this is this is one of the reasons why I've got uh, I guess I've got two Gen X daughters at this, uh, what's, what's the, what's 80, 83 and 86? Does that make them? No, they're millennials. Yeah. Oh, they're, millennials. they're, oh, they're millennials. Oh, yeah. uh-huh. they're, mil- they're true millennials. They're older millennials, yeah. They mm-hmm. don't read the paper. They right. get their news from Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't engage in politics, but, but I got to say, you know, the, the reason I think they don't engage in politics is, is, is not necessarily just because they're so busy, because all of us are busy all the time now, but you have this. You have a, a, a generational uh, distance now, especially on the Republican side, and even on the Democratic side. Look, I mean, Democrats are getting ready to to, to run Hillary Clinton. Uh, you know, who got her start on the Watergate committee. Yeah. You know, that's that's. Yeah. Uh, and in on the Republican side, you have a party that's really dominated by white old people. And it's going to stay that way for at least another election cycle, yeah, I think. Yeah, it was interesting. Brian, I wanted to ask you, it was interesting that in this particular poll, um, they uh, most of the millennials favored Paul Ryan. Yeah. Um, and Who's not running for who's president. Who's not right. running for right. right. yeah. And this was only a few months ago that yeah. the poll was taken. So to Jim's point, um, you know, how, how does the Republican Party engage millennials uh Perhaps it's a more difficult job for Republicans than Democrats. Well, I think we're going to have to do it on economic issues because when you look at that poll, you see that they are on, on social issues much more liberal than your average Republican or, the, as Jim said, the old white person Republican. And I really believe that uh, one thing that sets the millennials apart politically is is the first generation of Americans that are a majority minority or at least on the cusp of being majority-minority. So you're seeing the the face of the nation change dramatically right now. Uh, so you have uh, racial and ethnic groups that are traditionally Democrat groups, uh, plus you have a, a younger generation, which is traditionally more liberal, and they get more conservative as they get older. And you have all that coming together at once. So what I see in the short term, and you're already seeing this play out in the Electoral College, is a significant Democrat advantage uh, into the next 10 years. And what's going to happen is the Democrats are going to grow a majority and they're going to start having more and more leftist policies because that's what the, their base is going to demand. 
And once they get so far out, they're going to lose the people on their more centrist flank, and they will have a realignment. And you'll see a, a more moderate, perhaps uh, more centrist Republican Party emerge. But that's what's going to come. I think in the short term, it's going to be bad for my party. In the long term, we'll make it up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you a column um, from David Brooks in The New York Times the other day, who I think would disagree with you. He actually feels the field is flat going into this election um, because he thinks the aging generation is offsetting the diversity. Well, that's true. That's, 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 that, that's, um, that, but that's very short term. Uh, I'm yeah. talking more in the next yeah. 10 to 15 years. Yeah. Like, this is yeah. the trend. So you're not I, predicting I think, a Hillary victory. No, I, I think if the Republicans choose someone who is electable. If they choose wisely. If they yes. choose wisely, yeah. they have a chance. Because I do think there's, there's obviously some Obama fatigue, as there is at the end of any eight years. You know what? Um, if it's Hillary Clinton and Jeb Bush, which everyone seems to think it is at this point, although it's certainly early, um, that is actually turning off a lot of Gen Xers and boomers because we've been through those two families <laughs> a couple times before. Um, for millennials, though, these two guys are brand new in a way. So it might be it might bring them to the polls yeah, a little bit more, Greg. A, I don't know. It could be a fresh start. Um, I think many millennials have uh, somewhat fond memories of the Clinton era just because there was a booming economy. Our parents had good yeah. jobs mm-hmm. and you know, the, the at least in Atlanta in particular, the 90s were a decade of incredible growth, the Olympic decade. Um, whereas I think for some of us, especially who have memories of September 11th as being one of the defining moments, you know, I was a freshman in college and most millennials were in high school or middle school when that happened. Um, seeing President Bush's reaction in the, the aftermath of in the war on terror, um, you know, bring, even if we supported what he, you know, even if millennials supported the war on terror and what and President Bush's reaction, it just it also brings to mind a darker uh, phase. Um, we never had a chance. Some of us didn't have the chance to vote for, for you know, President Clinton or President Bush. Um, but those memories are still sharp. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rebecca, will younger people, do you think, um, vote more on the social issues than they will, even though they say the economy and debt, and obviously college debt for mm-hmm. a lot of them, but you know, debt and spending, the terrorism, these things are at the top of their list. In the end, they often vote on social issues. Mm-hmm. If it's social issues, we're definitely at an advantage, and I think that that's a great thing for us. But even if we talk about some of the economic issues, I think it's all in how that is conveyed to them. If we talk about being able to find a job or what it means, what minimum wage means to them, I think that you're going to find the Democrats are going to have an advantage if they start speaking to those issues in a way that the young people can understand. I think sometimes the rhetoric out there just doesn't speak to them on a local level. So they just, they do have that fatigue and they do say, oh, that's Washington. And that's, we can't really relate to that. That's not relevant. But if we can see the campaigns and we can see the candidates specifically speak to the issues that directly impact them, particularly at a local level, like we saw in 2014 with the Clayton Initiative, if we see those kind of changes in the campaigns, I think that whichever party galvanizes that is really going to have the best chance. So you're talking about messaging and communication. Now, we saw that bring out young people in 2008 for Barack Obama, right? Yeah, we did, so, but, but we didn't see it uh, last we year. We did not see, no. it, see it in 2012, yeah. no, or no. the midterm. Or 14. Right. But, <laughs> Yay! But, but let's take that moment in time, whether you're Republican or Democrat, let's take that moment in time and say, what is it that worked that galvanized young people? Well, part of it's got to be the rhetoric. I mean, you saw Obama defeat Hillary Clinton in Iowa in the primary with a coalition of the young that he built upon and over the next few months um, with with the rhetoric, rhetoric and a vision. 
And um, on the Republican field, really the, the Republican candidate who's already trying to, to, to become the candidate of the young, I think the most would be Senator Rand Paul. Yeah, and that's and 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 that's got all sorts of implications for for such things as uh, foreign policy. Mm-hmm. I mean, Rand Paul is trying to take the Republican Party in a far different direction than it's than it's been for a long time, uh, in, uh, uh, pretty much pre FDR years as far as as yeah. uh, 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 movement and and expanding your 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 reach abroad. I think there's a lot of uh, openness to what Rand Paul is saying on those issues too amongst uh, millennials. They millennials have not had the experience that the baby boomers had of everybody in your street getting drafted. They haven't had that, yeah. but they do know people from their high school who went and fought in Iraq mm-hmm. and in mm-hmm. Afghanistan. So the, war is um, an issue for them. That's not for my generation, frankly. The Gen Xers, we we're kind of caught in between. Yeah, and we, I'm done. We were yeah. We were <laughs> never we were never asked to go to war. Literally, yeah. no one that I know has ever served in combat. I, mean, I, yeah. I don't know people who served in combat, so it, it's changing your perspective. But I think that for people— I missed the draft by a well, week. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I read that somewhere. Somebody said, if you really want to change the face of politics, then reinstate the draft. Absolutely. That's, <laughs> so, that becomes—makes that becomes, yeah. uh, it very real. And, um, yeah, I, I do think that Ray and Paul may be a vision of what the party is going to look like in some years as we conform to a message that's going to sell to millennials and to some degree uh, Gen X as well. Uh, we are, they are, millennials are concerned about, about the debt. And I think that Republicans have a very strong message on that because what Democrat policies have done is a massive intergenerational wealth transfer from millennials to the World War II generation and to now baby boomers. That is what policy, that's what Obamacare does. It is a massive wealth transfer from millennials to uh, baby boomers. That's what it is. And uh, the millennials are having a harder time getting jobs over the last uh, you know, seven, eight years than um, the generations in the past. When I came out, I mean, they were throwing jobs at people. I mean, it was just, even I could get employed back in 1997. Um, they, they faced a very a very different world. And I, I don't know that millennials make the connection between Democrat, big government, high tax policies and their inability to get a job. But uh, I think as they get into their 30s and 40s, they will. True. Well, I think what you're going to see, though, is you're going to see a Probably, and we've picked up inklings of it right now, just a, a, a revolt over student loan debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of unemployment, you, you mentioned Obamacare, I think because of the, the, the just the job uncertainty, you're going to see people grab onto that a little firmer and firmer, I think, as years go on. I don't, I don't, think, uh, I, I don't think millennials are going to uh, reject Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. I think that's actually quite possible because um, – You've seen from Social Security in the 40s to Medicare and Medicaid in the 60s to Obamacare um, in the 2010s that once you have an entitlement, it can never go away, and people just accept it as fact. Uh, But the fact is we are going to drown under the weight of those decisions, and that time of reckoning is coming. And just like about the instituting the draft – it is when that day of reckoning comes, when we start having to pay real taxes on what we're really getting in government services, that's when you're going to see a realignment in the political parties because people are going to make real choices. Now they don't. You know, you can have low taxes and all this entitlement spending because we are racking up debt and passing along to the millennials and to their children. 
But there will come a day of reckoning. Ask Greece. Ask Spain. It's coming. And to that point, too, when the law, the law sponsors, one of the smartest things they, they did was add the provision that said you can stay on your parents' insurance until you're 26. Now, my circles of friends at the time, they were about 27, 28. But it was one of the biggest factors of, of their support for the law was, oh, we can stay on even after we graduate, even when we're struggling to find work or in grad school or whatever, but we can stay on our parents' insurance. It was a brilliant ploy, actually. I will admit that. It was a brilliant ploy because it, it, it did get buy-in from that, from that age bracket, even though it's a, you know, most of them have jobs and will get their own insurance. But even with your own insurance, depending on the job, it, it is, I have a full-time job and I still get my insurance through Obamacare. I know plenty of friends that do that were able to get off their parents' plans or aged out and they still have to. So it is a viable option and it does answer our concerns about health care. So to say that we're going to revolt against it, I don't know that that's entirely true because for a lot of us, it's a great advantage. Otherwise, we don't have anything. Uh, Let's talk about um, the minority vote, whether it's black or Hispanic. And I'm loath to, you know, say that either uh, those two groups are monolithic, you know, to Mm -hmm. one party or not. But it is commonly thought that African-Americans and Hispanics lean Democratic. Um, this is a very red state. There are projections of this state turning purple in the years to come. And I'm curious about how the millennial factor will pl- will play into state by state. Mm-hmm. It all depends on the turnout. I mean, and it's, I think it's very safe to say that the black vote is predominantly Democrat. I think the exit poll showed the governor deal cracked uh, double mm-hmm. digits. He got around 10 percent of the black vote. But that means, you know, it's a, that's a pretty monolithic right yeah. there, 90 percent. Hispanic vote is a little more fragmented. Um, but it, uh, exit, most exit polls show it leans Democratic as well. Um, but if these, if, the, if young folks aren't turning out, and I think Jason Carter's campaign in Georgia in particular depended on young people turning out and, and also getting these hundreds of thousands of, of minorities, many of whom are young, who had never registered to vote before to, to register to vote, they just weren't able to do that. And if they, they say that there's something, their estimates range from 600 to 800,000 unregistered minority voters out there. You know, the, uh, this New Georgia project registered about 80,000 of them, and half of those didn't even show up on the rolls for whatever reason. I think if anything <laughs> taught us, uh, if, if 2014 taught us anything, is that the, the, the Democratic resurgence is going to mimic uh, the Republican surge of the 1990s and, and, and 2000s, that it's going hmm. to be coming fits and starts, and it's going to be relatively slow. Brian's smiling over there. Right, Brian's <laughs> smiling. Rebecca's looking at Jim with a cocked eye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, I can say uh, I, I think that Democrats may have a better chance of regaining a foothold in statewide offices in Georgia uh, quicker than they can in the legislature because of how the districts are drawn mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. in the legislature. That can give uh, continued GOP dominance into uh, the 2020s. Uh, but I don't think that I am doing my party any disservices by saying that Georgia will become a purple state. We, we are next in line. I mean, after Virginia, North Carolina, we're the next domino. Um, in, in fact, I believe in, uh, in 2012, uh, of all the red states other than North Carolina, uh, Obama had the highest percentage. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, mm-hmm. it, it gives you an indication of where the vote is when everybody shows up. And when you have Obama at the ticket, you have more people show up because you had a very active, act, uh, motivated Republican base. 
but also a very motivated Democrat base. Obama managed to to really energize both sides, and so. But you uh, have to. But, but what you have to remember about Georgia politics is that, and this is this is something started by Democrats. Democrats pushed the governor and gubernatorial election into off-year elections, mm-hmm. and so it's an off. It uh, uh, the state will be ruled by an off-year population. Mm-hmm. Right, which which is absolutely a benefit to Republican mm-hmm. uh, office uh, seekers, no doubt. But I think to the earlier point when you're talking about registering, I think one of the misconceptions is that, and we see it a lot from third-party registrants, is they go out and they do this registration campaign and they basically think that they've done it. We have these great numbers. We registered 100,000, 80,000, whatever it is. And that's simply not enough, right? Taking the next step and making sure that they go out and that they're educated on the issues. I think that if we can get the voters, particularly in the Hispanic and the, the Latino and the African-American population, really to make the connections between the issues that impact them day to day, whether it's ballet class, whether it's minimum wage, whatever it is, and then correlate that to their local offices, I think that the, that could be really problematic for Republicans in an off-year cycle. If we could tell them, hey, when you elect these offices, guess who has the ability to make a decision about who gets in-state tuition? Guess who, guess who has the authority to decide you know, how this law is applied? or who reduces early voting days. If we can make all those connections, I think it could be um, worrisome for the Republican Party. Well, I think what you have to do is, I, th- I, th- I think what what's, if Democrats are going to have to do is they're going to ha- have to take every advantage of the presidential years to identify those voters. And that's when the cash comes in. It's going to be, you, you, for the next couple cycles, it's going to be hard to find major investors into a Democratic off-year statewide election, I think. Oh, I agree. I certainly hope that's the case. Uh, uh, regardless, <laughs> the uh, the fact is, long term, the Republicans are going to have to change their strategy to maintain our majority, whether in Georgia or elsewhere. And millennials will play a large part in why we have to do that. Um, our message is a strategic one at this juncture. We still are able to cobble together a majority by going after. Uh, our old demographic groups, our traditional supporters, our traditional coalition, and we hit that coalition and get them to the polls. The people in that coalition are dying every day. And, uh, you know, one thing I always say when I speak into college groups is how politics is changing is every day in Georgia, someone who is adamantly against gay marriage dies and someone who is perfectly fine with it and would never even think to have a problem with it gets a voter card. And so, and you're seeing that happen super, mm-hmm. super fast. You're yeah. seeing, you're seeing mm-hmm. the polling on marijuana over the last 15 years in Georgia. It's been amazing. Amazing the, how how quickly. I mean, in 2002, if you polled a Democrat primary uh, electorate, that had been 80 percent against legalization of marijuana. 80 percent amongst Democrats. Yeah. Uh, and, t- and today you can get. What, what is it in the Republic primary? It's, 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 it's <laughs> higher than you would think. Wait, by the way, you think. in the fusion survey, it actually turned out that it was independents who were more likely to smoke, smoke marijuana than yeah. Republicans or Democrats. Yeah. So. But, you know, there's, I mean, uh, there was a time when just the fact that marijuana is in the title, even though there's no THC in this product we're discussing, would have been enough to kill it mm-hmm. just by sheer association. And if you poll that issue, it's over 80% in support, 80%. You know, that's one, one thing I always said internally in the governor's office is we should be shouting this from the rooftops. I mean, <laughs> how often do you get an 80% issue 
where you cut across all of these demographics, you cut across all of these partisan lines, you cut across all these um, generational lines. And I'm like, we should be talking about this all the time <laughs> because this is. Yeah, I, I'm wondering if the same thing is going to happen with any religious liberty or religious freedom bill. I think a lot of that is driven by this by the same sort of polling on a particular issue um, because that well, I shouldn't even get us started. Well, on well, but if you want to, if you want, if you want to, if you want to, I can, I can, I can cover for Brian here. <laughs> this is, this yeah. is, this is a national issue. This is mm-hmm. a national presidential issue. It that's is. why. That's yeah. why it's. That's that's the the the. It's that that's where it's originated. This is. This is stirring up the base for the 2016 election, no matter what happens in Georgia. And they're going to have to run with it all the way through the primary and then somehow make that pivot that Mitt Romney talks about. And with a a Supreme Court decision looming on gay marriage that they'll have to answer to. I mean, this is tapping into a national GOP discomfort over gay marriage. And even though the polls are showing that shift, it it might not show it quick enough. And meanwhile, most Democratic candidates are, are... we're all for it. Yeah, and most millennials. Again, that's one of one of those issues that um, that uh, polls well with millennials in, the, in their support for gay marriage. Because just so. like Brian was saying, we see it, we we not only have friends who in, in high school classmates who who fought in combat, but we have friends. You know, even I I, I have a guy I rode the school bus with who came out when he was a fr- sophomore in high school. You know, and back then it was a big deal, and and then five years later, my brother said half his you know. The, a third of his class came out, and it was kind of a shrug. Right. Well, you know, I, I grew up in a rural area where, as, as a Gen Xer, and but, but even in Atlanta, it was, you know, when I, when I was growing up, it was still taboo, the whole uh, gay issue. And uh, I remember the first time I was working at the Red and Black in, at the University of Georgia, and I figured out that two of my coworkers were in a same-sex relationship and i was shocked <laughs> just absolutely shocked because I, I had never been exposed to it before i had never seen it and you know you don't it's not wouldn't be shocking to it wouldn't be shocking to my grandmother now you know yeah, it's just yeah. it, 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 yeah. it's changed dramatically in 15 years and um you know the millennials are going to be are coming into politics with a much different perspective on that than than my grandparents generation did but also you know millennials on their way into work every day can choose between 30 different brands of coffee. <laughs> they get choices in everything they do. They get choices in, um, in, in, in everything. They, they have, uh, and that's what they know. And so this one-size-fits-all that we've often had, top-down politics, I don't think is going to work for them. You're, also, you're seeing it in ways that are good for Republicans and ways that are good for Democrats. For Democrats, you know, you definitely see millennials being much more open and supportive of mass transit than Uh, perhaps even my generation would be, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. I I mean, I know for me personally in in D.C., when I bought a house, I bought a house where I could park my car. It was really important to me. I was not getting on one of those stinking trains. (laughs) And And I bought by the Metro. (laughs) I was clear I was getting on that train every day. Right, Mm -hmm. and I I, I would just rather not. (laughs) um, Jim Galloway, Greg Bluestein, Brian Robinson, and Becca Guerra, thank you all so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Join us for the next Generation Nation, and thanks for joining us today. I'm Bobby Batista.